Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Many would tell you the idea of free speech is fundamental to our ideals of liberty in the United States of America. It is enshrined in the First Amendment after all. But some argue efforts to curtail hateful speech is putting this idea at risk. Is hate speech, is free speech under attack? Former president of the American Civil Liberties Union, Nadine Strassen joins the show to make the case for why we should resist offensive and hateful speech with more speech, not censorship. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. These days, it feels like we're always fighting about free speech. Yesterday's Colin Kaepernick kneeling has become today's critical race theory. To be sure, these arguments are often not directly about free speech. Often, they are discussing the consequences of free speech and who has the power to enforce those consequences. Recently in Michigan, a new free speech-related issue arose. That's because Jamestown Township residents voted to defund its library because it carries LGBTQ-themed graphic novels. But it's not just conservatives that don't like free speech. Many younger people want to make hate speech illegal. The topic of free speech doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon, and that means we're flooded with questions about it. For starters, what is free speech? What would it mean to make hate speech illegal? And what does any of this have to do with cancel culture? Is canceling, in fact, even a new part of our culture? Nadine Strassen is someone who thought a lot about these things and has thought a lot about them as well. She is a former president of the American Civil Liberties Union and a New York Law School emeritus professor. She's also the author of the 2018 book, Hate Speech, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. She's here now to discuss what free speech is and why we should have more of it. Nadine, welcome to Detroit Today. Nick, thank you so much for having me and for that fantastic introduction. It would take 10 hours to answer all of those questions. Well, that's all right, then. That means we'll schedule you out for 10 more shows, and then we can get it all fitted in. Perfect. But let's start here, then, with kind of, I think, the most basic fundamental idea here. What is free speech for all of us? Because you think about it in the public context, you think about it in the private context. I think a lot of times people will argue these things one with the other. What is free speech and how does it apply to all of us? Great way to start. And you know that I teach and many law professors teach an entire year-long course trying to answer that question. So apologies for the oversimplification from a legal perspective, but the really fundamental concept is one that transcends law and has really been fought for and prized by people all over the world throughout history. And the fundamental idea, Nick, really is tied to freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience. If we don't have the opportunity to freely formulate our own ideas and opinions and beliefs, um, then we are really being deprived of our humanity, our individuality, our freedom of thought and belief. You know, there's that famous saying by Descartes, I think therefore I am. And when you think of every dystopia, um, you have Big Brother that, for example, in George Orwell's 1984, that is prying into people's minds by constantly watching them and making them beware of saying certain things. Remember, in 1984, many words are being banned because the idea is that, well, if the word doesn't exist, then the idea doesn't exist. So governments can get rid of dangerous ideas 
subversive thoughts by stamping out speech. So, you know, in one fell swoop, I've told you what free speech is, the right to choose what our own beliefs are through expressing them. Uh, And on the other hand, what censorship is, taking that right uh, of self-determination away from us individuals. We know that in America, the concept of uh, free speech, again, it's enshrined in the Constitution. The government should not be able to preclude that. But a lot of the issues that we deal with here, and I think you make the case in your book that even outside of that context, in the private context, for example, in social media, we should still have more free speech. And even these private entities should resist the temptation to uh, infringe on that ability. Can you make the case for us here as why that should apply in those areas as well? Absolutely. Many people are surprised to learn that the First Amendment free speech guarantee, wonderful as it is, uh, does not go far enough insofar as it only protects us against government censorship. Uh, We all know that there are many powerful private sector forces that as a practical matter have at least as much of a speech suppressive impact as government. Uh, you mentioned social media that have their so-called content moderation policies. Uh, some of us would think of that as sensorial policies because the impact is that certain ideas are kicked off the platform, certain expression, indeed certain speakers are kicked off altogether. You also mentioned in your excellent introduction, Nick, cancel culture, the power of peer pressure, the fear of being retaliated against by our private sector employees or being shunned or shamed by our colleagues or our friends or the public in general. These have enormous speech suppressive impacts as a practical matter. So even if government, you know, let's just assume hypothetically the ACLU wins every single lawsuit against every single government. What a world. What a world that would be. (laughs) But, you know, it still wouldn't be a good enough world, Nick, because we would still have the tech giants and the Twitter mobs uh, being able to, to censor us. And public opinion surveys show that most people are most afraid of those private powers, that they are engaging in massive self-censorship of speech that is absolutely constitutionally protected for fear of even unwittingly saying something that somebody sees as insensitive or a microaggression uh, and therefore, you know, calls them, as one of my friends puts it, some kind of an ist or some kind of an obe. And, you know, fortunately, we live in a society where so many people are committed to anti-racism, that, which is wonderful. That means one of the greatest insults that you can receive is if somebody calls you a racist. So you're going to bend over backwards to avoid saying anything whether it be raising a question about defund the police policies or raising a question about affirmative action, even if you have those views, which public opinion surveys show that the majority of Americans do have questions about those policies, but don't dare voice them. Mm. And and that's especially distressing when it happens on college campuses. Uh, And again, surveys show that all across the political spectrum, from left to right, students and faculty members are engaging in massive self-censorship. We're speaking with Nadine Strassen, former president of the American Civil Liberties uh, Union and the New uh, New York Law School professor emeritus and author of the book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And I think that uh, you're making really good points as to Uh, kind of one-on-one or more direct interactions on battling speech with more speech. We don't want to necessarily chill, have a chilling effect on uh, people's speech because good ideas can come out from that. And I think you make the case wonderfully in your book. However, in the, in the context that you're bringing up with social media, and we've discussed this a little bit earlier this week as well, one of the things I think of is when the First Amendment was thought of, when free speech was thought of, the means of communication that we had, as rapid as it is, as, uh, as large as it is on a large scale, even with bots being involved in it now, right, creating speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talk about free speech in those contexts, we're talking about not people but bots or folks mm-hmm. who can just 
drill you with an idea over and over again on a much larger scale than anyone's mm-hmm. ever dealt with in society. Uh, what would you say to folks who are saying, hey, that's just free speech coming back at you. That is not chilling or uh, uh, preventing you from being able to use your speech. These are all such excellent questions because, of course, one has the right to exercise free speech precisely to criticize or to say something that is offensive or that calls another remark offensive. As you said, Nick, the title of my book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech. So I myself am advocating what lawyers often call counter speech, indeed using our free speech rights to try to deter people from engaging in certain kinds of expression. Uh, So really the, the, the difficult question, and it's been discussed a lot, is when does, you know, appropriately rigorous, tough, harsh criticism of dangerous ideas, which is an exercise of free speech, cross over the line to have such a suppressive impact, such a disproportionately harsh impact that it, it, it blocks too much speech. And my best way to answer that is to say, you know, we should try to distinguish between criticizing certain ideas versus canceling yeah. certain people, right? We have to avoid such unduly harsh disproportionate retaliation. So uh, to me, the most extreme example, and unfortunately there are many instances of it, is somebody who is admitted to college and then it's discovered that years earlier, uh, the person, when still an adolescent, uh, probably engaging in experimentation with alcohol, right, Right. uh, goes online and says something stupid, that he or she completely regrets and apologizes for their subsequent life is completely inconsistent with those remarks, and yet the colleges retract their admissions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing to say that was a stupid remark and thank you for apologizing for it and promising you're never going to say it again. That's all fine. But to say, we're going to you know, deny you your educational opportunity, and we're basically saying that for the rest of your life you're going to be stigmatized and shunned and ostracized and punished because of this youthful indiscretion, uh, that goes too far. Yeah. You know, that story that you bring up, and it makes me think about the idea of someone, again, making a mistake there. Uh, I'd been involved with the juvenile legal system before. And uh, because of an error, you have that long tail, that long consequence on your career, your ability Mm -hmm. to... to, um, develop and what that can do that's a moment where if you did make a mistake and it could be corrected with maybe some empathy you might come across the oh i understand the error of my ways versus if you're just drilled down and like nope we want nothing to do with you anymore Uh and i think you might have just created another person who's an advocate against the position or more drilled down into the position that they had with that silly tweet or whatever beforehand you're, you're exactly right, and this is why uh, people who are experts in and dedicate their whole lives toward uh, promoting racial justice and social justice. Um, let me just mention one, uh, Loretta Ross, who is a professor now and has been a full-time human rights activist um, throughout her entire distinguished career. She has written very strongly against cancel culture and against shaming and shunning precisely from the perspective of what is going to be the most effective way to change that person's heart and mind and, more importantly, behavior. And she has actually gone into prisons and worked with prisoners who have been convicted of brutal hate crimes, uh, including rapes, and she herself was, was a rape victim. She's an African-American woman. And, and, and she believes completely through her experience that the harsh, punitive approach is never going to have a positive impact. As you say, it just she's watched it harden these people in their hateful convictions. But when you reach out to them and you use some of these words, Nick, with empathy, with compassion, with understand you know, not equating the person to the worst thing they've ever done. And here I'm channeling Brian Stevenson, that wonderful 
crusader against the death penalty, even for somebody who has committed a homicide. Brian and now increasingly others in our society are saying we should use a restorative justice approach, back away from this overly harsh, punitive approach. And I think it's so interesting that we have many Republicans and conservatives, as well as bleeding-heart liberals uh, and Democrats, joining together to say, you know, this is the more effective way to make somebody a constructive member of our society, to overcome hateful and violent ideas and actions. If we're willing to do that for people who have actually committed homicide, why in the world can't we do it for somebody who has committed the infraction of saying something hateful or discriminatory or offensive? We're speaking with Nadine Strassen, former president of the ACLU and a current law professor, as well as the author of Hate, Why We Should Resist It with free speech, not censorship. But we'd also like to speak with you right now. What do you make of free speech today? Do you feel like we're creating a culture prone to censorship? Do you think that there are areas of speech where people should be censured, like in the case of hate speech? Or do you think it's a slippery slope? Alternatively, do you think we've expanded what free speech looks like and what we should and let us know what we should continue to do about that? Where do you feel most free to express your ideas today, perhaps on Detroit today? Give us a call. 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And we will work you into the conversation and working his way into the conversation right now. We have Michael on Twitter. and He asks, does the guest acknowledge that some groups or people with large platforms use strategies to encourage hate and violence, especially on social media? If so, where is the line on those private platforms? I bring the question to you, uh, Professor uh, Nadine. Go ahead. Oh, thanks so much, Michael. Uh, again, an excellent question. And uh, it gives me an opportunity to say that since these private platforms are uh, private sector entities that are engaging in communications, not only do they not have a First Amendment obligation to allow any voices, just the way I have no free speech right to be on this fabulous uh, program, Detroit <laughs> Today, and I would defend Nick's decision to kick me off. I wouldn't like it. But, the, uh, you know, that not only do these private platforms not have to uh, host any particular expression or speaker. To the contrary, they have their own First Amendment rights to make decisions about what speech they will host and will not host. And for that reason, I strongly oppose all the many legislative measures that are being uh, advanced uh, by both Democrats and Republicans in Congress that would, and, and at the state level as well, that seek to have government, you know, heavy-handedly regulate the content moderation practices of these platforms. To me, that's inconsistent with their First Amendment rights. But I'm also acknowledging the real-world problem of the many people. I read about cases every day, not only the well-publicized Donald Trump's of the world, but, you know, people who are trying to voice their views, communicate with their neighbors, affect public policy, and, and they'll get kicked off Twitter or Facebook, often without any reason at all, without any explanation, without any opportunity to appeal. In some cases, they, you know, have a contact and Complaints are made, and the and 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 the the platform will acknowledge that uh, a mistake has been made, and and put the message up. But it's a very haphazard and arbitrary uh, procedure. So, what I would strongly support would be some kind of procedural protections. You know, recognizing the enormous power that these platforms have to control our democratic discourse which is so important in our form of government, um, that, that we would at least have, first of all, there would have to be much more transparency about what their policies are, because mm-hmm. they're constantly changing. Um, we would have the right to notice if um, something that we've posted allegedly falls afoul of any of these policies. We would have an opportunity to appeal. Uh, so I think, you know, those procedural guarantees to me are consistent with the free speech rights 
of these platforms, but would also go a long way to uh, eliminate the many unjust takedowns that are occurring now. Yeah, we're on Detroit today again talking about free speech with Nadine Strawson, a law professor, as well as the former uh, president of the ACLU. And we want to speak with you. 313-577-1019. What are your thoughts on free speech right now in terms of in the public square, in the private square as well? When we continue, I'm going to get to your calls as well as ask Nadine specifically about an instance when she was attacked and why she still believes that uh, people should have the right to hate speech, given that instance. We'll get into all of that as Detroit Today continues in a moment on 1019 WDET. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson with a very robust conversation about something I know a lot of us are interested in right now free speech, our laws around it, and what kind of norms, more importantly, we should create to have a more open and curious as well as respectful public square, kind of like we try to do each day here on Detroit Today. And we can't do that without you and folks like Eve. In Windsor, Eve, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Eve, are you there? Do you mean Steve? I do mean Steve. Go right ahead. Well, hello. How are you today? I'm doing well, Steve. Go ahead with your question as we okay. are here with Nadine Strassen. My concept of free speech is that as citizens, we're free to express ourselves, and free speech means we're protected from being punished by our government for what we want to say. Um, the, to me, one of the best models of free speech is in London, where they have speaker's corner and everybody can stand up and say whatever they want. Um, one of the things that troubles me, and before I say that, I no longer have a home in either the Democrat or the Republican Party, but one of the things that troubles me today is that a former president, whether you like him or don't like him, the most of the media has blocked him from access. Um, I'm not trying to disturb a beehive here, but I'm just saying that that's something that troubles me. But I'm repeating myself, but to me, free speech is protection from the government action based on your opinion. Very good, Steve. Thank you. I do appreciate your comment. Go ahead, uh, Nadine. Yeah, Steve, I I, I uh, 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 agree with part of what you said, but I disagree with another part. And here's why. You twice said that to you, free speech is protection against government censorship. That's true, but it doesn't go far enough because I agree with you wholeheartedly that it is very disturbing that a former president of the United States, in fact, he was still president of the United States when he was kicked off major social media platforms. It was not the government that did that, and yet there are serious free speech implications, not only for that individual himself, but for the rest of us. Freedom of speech means not only the right to convey information and ideas, but also the right to receive them. And all of us who were interested in hearing what that person had to say, given his power in the world, we didn't have to support him to be interested in in what he had to say. In fact, to the contrary, many analysts say that uh, the reason that he lost the election or a significant reason was because of what he was saying on social media turned many traditionally Republican voters against him. Uh, So um, if we are to rein in that enormous power on the part of the tech platforms uh, that has an adverse impact on all of us in a democracy. And it's especially important to hear the ideas, the information or the disinformation that's coming from those who are elected officials or seeking to be elected officials. Uh, Then we need to look for protection against tech 
uh, overreaching as well as government overreaching. You know, thanks again for your call, Steve. Uh, I do have a bit of a response to that. I absolutely believe in uh, having a free expression of ideas. But, you know, when I think about someone who, if I know that all they do is they attempt to stir up the pot and just spread lies. And I'm talking about in my own private situation. Let's say I'm hanging out with friends and someone who wants to come over and I'm like, I know that guy. All he does is want to poke the bear. That's all he's interested in doing. Or in a sports mm-hmm. context, you have a, a weekly sports game, basketball, volleyball, football, whatever. And you have the one guy who always comes in. He just wants to talk junk and mess over people. And I, I might not invite him to the game. Why mm-hmm. would I, should I be required to invite a person like that who I feel like uh, is never benefiting anybody? And it's my game. I can, ha- I can have who I want there. Why should I invite them to the game? I completely agree on the kind of small scale level that you're talking about, Nick. Uh, but when we go beyond that and we talk about, you know, millions of communications every day right. and, deci- you know, decisions that have to be made in instantaneously without having the longstanding background and context that you have when you, you've known this person for years um, but are just looking at a particular expression, we see an enormous amount of, of erroneous applications of these standards. And, you know, a, a concept such as disinformation, just like the concept of hate speech, is so subjective. Hmm. No two people are going to possibly agree on it. You know, one person's cherished hate speech, cherished loving speech is somebody else's hate speech. You know, yeah. examples I give are, are Black Lives Matter. Many of us consider that to be extremely positive, counteracting hate. And yet we've had powerful politicians and others denounce Black Lives Matter as hate speech against white people, hate speech against police officers, and so forth. A disinformation, you know, one person's disinformation is somebody else's cherished truth, and it can change for the very same person over time. Look at the evolving views and, and, and opinions and advice that we've gotten, even from the very same government officials, the very same public health agencies over the course of the COVID pandemic. You know, the advice and the information about everything from masking to what was the origin of the, uh, of the, of the COVID pandemic have changed as more information and analysis comes to light. If we nipped that in the bud, because at the time the consensus happens to be that, well, this is inaccurate disinformation, then we'd never have the opportunity to explore and develop, and and, and that would be adverse to public health, right? Yeah, yeah. When when it's so hard to create those definitions or when they can be applied capriciously, it's probably safer just to not apply them at all. Though, I guess that means I will still get uh, messages and tweets from people trying to tell me why the earth is flat. I'll have to deal with it as we move. Nobody's forcing you to read them or believe them. That is true. That is true. As we move to Robert in Huntington Woods. Robert, you're next. Go ahead on Detroit Today. Hi, uh, my name is Robert Holly. I'm a retired uh, library science professor at Wayne State University. Oh, wonderful. And the first thing I will say is that I used your book, Defending Pornography, in my classes. Oh, thank you. That was uh, still um, controversial to this day. <laughs> As you know, and many libraries are being attacked for their supposed pornographic uh, okay. work that relating to LGBTQ sexuality. Okay, I'm actually taking the opposite side. I've been a serious intellectual freedom, no-holds-barred person since the early 70s, and the American Library Association is now changing, considering changing its position on content neutrality to be opposed to any of the articles that offend anyone. And so this is not a policy yet, but it's being considered, and I have two serious concerns about this. Uh, the first one is that how are you ever going to make this happen? Is uh, Are they going to start sending out, take these books off your shelf? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second one is in my uh, freedom of speech things. I have often defended things that conservative Christians consider to be blasphemous and very hurtful. And mm-hmm. what happens if they complain about those things in the same way as I think the policy is supposed to help those on the left who are against some of the things that they are against. And I don't know. I don't know how it can happen. And I have literally spent sleepless nights thinking about this. 
Thank you so much, Robert. And thank, uh, librarians are on the front lines of free speech and intellectual freedom. You're always my heroes. And I've been privileged to speak to many library forums, the American Library Association and some of the state affiliates. And I have been following uh, the debates that have been going on within that profession as they have been going on uh, within journalism, Nick, your profession, within publishing, within the ACLU itself, my profession, uh, where, you know, the tried and true principles of classical liberalism, including, um, you know, I, will, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to, to say it, uh, actually written by Evelyn Beatrice Hall, a biographer of Voltaire's. All of that is being questioned, including by the younger members of professions that traditionally have have defended them. Oh, mm-hmm. how could I forget academia? Right. Uh, I think it, I completely agree with John Stuart Mill's classic on liberty that every idea should be questioned, especially the ones that we think are most fundamental. And I have welcomed the challenges to um, to those classic principles. And I have to tell you, you know, on my constant re-examination with as close to an open mind as is humanly possible, I recognize we all have our cognitive biases, but I, uh, I continue to be convinced that problematic as free speech definitely is, potentially dangerous as much expression definitely is, it is less problematic and less dangerous than handing over to powerful gatekeepers, whether they be government or tech giants, uh, the power to make these necessarily subjective discretionary decisions about whether it is worth the opportunity to read something. You know, to take just a really dramatic example, Robert, I know that some libraries and even some publishers are debating whether they should continue to make Mein Kampf available. Well, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and I think it is absolutely critical if we are to instill in people an understanding of the evils of Nazism and fascism and anti-Semitism that is really helpful for them to read Mein Kampf. And, and likewise, I would say about, you know, other uh, racist tracts. I, I defer to librarians' expertise to make content, they're not content neutral, but viewpoint neutral determinations that something is shoddy research, or it's a topic that's not of interest to the community. I mean, the traditional criteria for book selection. But I strongly oppose deciding that certain views are evil and that, that therefore we should not be exposed to them. I think if we're the best way to, um, to reinforce our ability to counter those evil ideas is precisely by being exposed to them and learning how to argue against them. Thank you so much, Robert, for your call and uh, work with the library. Very truly important work you do there as we speak with Nadine Strassen, a law professor and former president of the ACLU. We'll continue with our conversation on free speech with you, Phyllis and Warren. You keep holding on. We're coming up with you as well as Leslie and Hazel Park and an opportunity for you right there listening to get involved in the conversation 313-577-1019 we'll be back for more detroit today WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. 
I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson as we have a robust conversation about what free speech looks like today and why it still matters with Nadine Strawson, former president of the American Civil Liberties Union and the author of Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And we provide the speech now to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. I think, Nick, that one of our problems is something that's lacking here in the area, but I think it's lacking in a lot of places. I grew up in Chicago, a weird place to say the least, but one of the things it had was a little area called Bughouse Square, and in Bughouse Square, you could go and stand up and spout your opinions, and people would gather around and argue with you or ignore you, one or the other. I think it takes courage to stand up in front of people and make your opinions known, and I think it takes a lot to take and argue with someone, and we don't have that. We don't have any of the places that we should have where we get together and argue it out with words and go home thinking. Excellent points, Phyllis, as you always have, Phyllis and Warren. And I present that to you, uh, give you an opportunity to respond, Nadine. Thank you so much, Phyllis. And I I do agree that uh, the kind of exchange that goes on in social media or uh, any remote kind of context cannot be a substitute for uh, face-to-face, not only arguing and debating, but uh, even more constructively, discussion and dialogue. And precisely because so many people are so concerned, just as you are, about this problem, Phyllis, uh, there have been, I'm happy to tell you, uh, a very strong increase in the number of programs on campuses around the country that are striving to provide exactly this kind of opportunities. Entire departments and programs that are dedicated to civil discourse and dialogue, courses, uh, training programs, orientation programs at the beginning of a new college year uh, where people are skilled moderators um, instill the approaches that can be used both for empathetic listening, respectful, although robust discourse. And interestingly enough, there are a lot of strategies that have been developed by experts that are now being harnessed by students and professors who say that they are hungering for this kind of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, there are also programs that are taking place at the community level around the country through a number of organizations, one of which is called Braver Angels, uh, where p- members of the community who say, you know, we just really want to have the opportunity to discuss difficult and challenging ideas, including with people who have different perspectives, you know, uh, problems about police issues, about immigration issues, uh, gender equality issues, sexual violence, race issues, and so forth. Uh, And the, the positive response has been overwhelming. You know, sometimes people don't change their minds. Uh, but they, they don't change their minds about their ideas, but they have more respect for people who have different perspectives. Um, they understand that they can't, that you're, just because somebody disagrees with me, even on something that I feel strongly about, doesn't mean that they're not a good human being, and they find that their, their lives are enriched. So uh, the very problem that you point to has become so profound that it's starting to lead to solutions, which make me very hopeful for the future. Uh, Progress moving forward. Phyllis, thanks again for calling so much, as always, here on Detroit Today. And we want you listening right now to join the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the phone number to join the conversation as we speak with Nadine Strassen, who is a professor of law and former president of the ACLU. Are you someone who, uh, in this current environment, believes that we do need more censorship or we need a, a method of protecting more vulnerable members of society. Maybe you disagree a little bit with uh, Professor Strassen, with Nadine. Now's the time to get in and make that call. 313-577-1019 as we move to Leslie in Hazel Park. Leslie, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. 
Well, thank you and good morning. I, I, as much as I find your guest to be spot on with so many things, there's a little bit of a dichotomy going on, whereas our former president stirred the nation into such a boiling point. We're taking people that were feeling they were not being heard and so on. And then giving them, he was a megaphone. He wasn't even on a platform. He was on a megaphone in the air, letting millions of people, giving them the the um, the wherewithal to say, okay, don't just wait on me. Be self-acting and do what you have to do to silence, you know, fill in the blank, the FBI, the government, et cetera, et cetera just like the words when he came out of the White House for the first time of a briefing from Obama. Boy, that's a lot of information. I mean, duh. I mean, for crying out loud, you're, you're ahead of a nation. Yeah. And I think that giving a free speech is 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 essential, yeah. but they're gutting every newsroom and have gutted and shut just about shut down probably... 70% of many of the small newsrooms mm-hmm. and yeah. it, it, it has prevented, you know, a good, true fact-based information that we all need. That's why I listen to NPR and PBS and little else. You know what, Leslie, I really appreciate that point that you got there, especially on the end. And I do want to present that to you, Nadine, as one of the things that uh, you mentioned in your book and and you've discussed is that uh, we used to have uh, uh, platforms, local platforms that would serve as maybe a counterbalance in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, of media, with Fox News being a conduit to the former president and things and local news being so reduced, as Leslie mentioned. Mm -hmm. How do we get it back? How does that interplay with free speech? Right. Thank you both so much. Really, really important points. And it's another example of why just having legal protection against government censorship is not enough to have a meaningful, robust, vibrant free speech culture. Uh, we need those alternative platforms. And uh, so but let me just say this. Uh, in terms of the solution or, or in terms of the online media, they are part of the solution as well as being part of the problem. Uh, there are many micro newsletters that are exi- online that exist at the most local community level around the country where, you know, we have citizen journalists as well as professional journalists who are really focusing in and fill- trying to fill that gap that has, uh, that the, the, the demise of local newspapers has uh, provided. We also have very specialized newsletters and experts. So, you know, if you don't find the information you're looking for, you don't trust the information you're looking for that you get from a few major national outlets, you can go to the original source itself. That has never been easier than it is in this online age. So for me, I'm interested in issues about civil liberties and human rights. So, you know, I can go to organizations that work full time doing their own investigation and report on those issues. And you can do the same for any issue, whether it be, you know, about elections or about uh, climate or so forth. You, you don't have to depend on any intermediaries. Uh, and that's the, that's the benefit. But something else that's really, really important is that we all need to learn critical media skills, yeah. how to sort the true from the untrue, the misleading uh, from, from the true, how to do our own original research. Because no amount, even the most heavy-handed censorship that even the most totalitarian regime has imposed has never been completely successful in blocking out the targeted information or disinformation. Some is going to come through. And so we have to inoculate ourselves and train our young children from the earliest age to not believe everything they read or see. A very important skill, and thank you again, uh, Leslie, for your call as we move now to James. James, go ahead. You are on Detroit Today. Hi. Uh, uh, how's it going? How's it going? Oh, sorry, I'm getting in the car. 
What timing? What timing, James? Are you ready to go now? Jump on in. All right. So uh, most of the time I've been hearing about cancel culture for the past few uh, years. It's been in response to something that someone has said, and mostly I've seen it as a dodge to not have to actually talk about the thing that's said. I think it's mostly a power play, and it's a a conversational power play that's used to basically get get out of actually talking about what you're talking about, because this entire time I haven't heard any actual examples. You, you mean examples of people being canceled? There are yeah. several in the book, but go ahead. One, especially with the Twitter suspensions, there is a mechanism to appeal a Twitter suspension. That's true. It's been there unfortunately, for Unfortunately, there isn't, and uh, it's or certainly not one that's evenly applied. And uh, it, to give you examples, because I know we are running out of time, there's a newsletter uh, that comes out seven days a week called Reclaim the Net, and it is just filled every day with examples of people who were erroneously, arbitrarily, discriminatorily kicked off platforms for saying something that somebody considered to be offensive and, and often on very important topics that the rest of us would want to hear about. Sometimes they have recourse, but sometimes they don't. There is no reliable you know, system of appeal consistent with due process standards. But I agree with you. If we had that, that would be, that would be excellent. That would be fine. James, go ahead. Did you have more? Yeah, I believe the Twitter suspension process is also, yeah, it is a bit arbitrary and capricious because most moderation on most internet plays, and there is a chance that people can be suspended arbitrarily and then assume there's some narrative behind it. That is true. Well, the examples, I can give you examples. So, you know, in in the area of hate speech, um, sadly, people who are getting online quoting hate speech that has been hurled against them. One really poignant case was an African-American mother of two young kids, and she went online to, you know, just seek for support. Uh, uh, you know, racism still exists, and, you know, I'm suffering, my kids are suffering, and uh, and she was kicked off the platform because that was branded to be hate speech, and it literally was because she repeated verbatim the hateful message that had been issued toward her kids. That kind of thing, unfortunately, happens all the time. The human moderators are over, vastly overworked. The, the bots are just proceeding in the most literal fashion, looking at the words, not able to look at context. So it's, it, it's not, you know, it's completely predictable that that kind of uh, error would be made repeatedly. You know, one of the things that you bring up, and I do hear a little bit uh, kind of in that question I kind of want to get into, is uh, the concern about uh, not only uh, uh, mental health and the effects of speech uh, or offensive speech and where we balance Uh out the concerns for those, which you do discuss and have concern about, Uh but also uh, how when we have just this massive amount, uh, how that can manifest itself into maybe physical harm or if this is the best way to protect Uh people from that versus you need tougher and thicker skin. How do you balance out on people who uh, advocate for maybe a little bit more censorship or advocate for a more protective model? Because this is just uh, rewarding people who maybe don't have the best interest. They're just more about the aggressive manner and, and not the people who are a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more concerned about uh, their fellow person. Yeah, here, here I go to quote you know, the portions of my book that, that you are referring to, Nick. I'm not speaking for myself. I'm quoting mental health experts psychologists, social psychologists, uh, people who really know about, you know, what negative impact words can have and what is the most positive, constructive way to counteract that. And specifically from the perspective of mental health, they say what you think of as protection, shielding somebody from hurtful words, is actually counterproductive because you are making them more vulnerable and less resilient to the inevitable barrage of hateful, upsetting, offensive speech that they are going to be exposed to given the world that we live in, right? It's a little bit like the concept of of immunity, a little bit of exposure to, you know, to the, the negative impact can help you develop resources, internal resources, to ward off a more adverse negative impact. And um, and so, therefore, purely from the perspective of exactly what is good for that person's mental and psychological and emotional health and ultimately physical well-being is to instill in them 
the self-confidence. So I'm not going to allow somebody to bring me down just by what they say. And let me quote my friend and colleague, Jonathan Rauch, who is a long, you know, lifelong crusader for LGBTQ rights. And I'm going to use a, a, a slur. Uh, so it, quoting him that he, that he uses. Uh, so this is the trigger warning. But to make that point, he says, you know, if somebody calls me a f- I process that as she needs counseling, not that I'm a. F- what you're right. Well, we do have some uh, FCC requirements here, uh, uh, Nadine. But I, I do appreciate the sentiment there, as this is a. Uh, uh, as we are uh, speaking with uh, with you about this topic and free speech, and I certainly want to censor that, but sometimes I think the uh, FCC does have some concern. I, I would like to get into a, a question, though, specifically uh, about uh, more free speech. Uh, you know, you make a, a lot of arguments in your book about how in the law we do have protections for free speech. Do you think they don't? They they are too many protections. Do you think that we should have more free speech with the uh, federal government, do, or do you think that the protections exist as they are right now are perfectly in line what how how would you advocate for uh free speech or if we should I have more right that now the, that the current first amendment law is very speech protective it has be, been so starting in the middle of the 20th century until that time the first amendment like many constitutional rights existed on paper but didn't exist as a practical reality i mean why did martin luther king write his historic letter from the Birmingham jail because he and other crusaders for civil rights and uh, equal justice were considered to be dangerous and incendiary. Uh, Unfortunately, those precedents were overturned and uh, we do have good civil protections. They're not self-enforcing. Right, right. Know what their rights are, stand up for them. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nadine Strassen, as this is uh, 101.9 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in on Monday when we speak to Mark Clegg about uh, the national anthem. We'll see you then.